Welcome to this message from Alpha and Omega Christian Fellowship. We are a family on a journey to become more like Christ, sharing His kingdom by expressing His love. We hope that you will be blessed and encouraged by what we have to share. Good morning once again to all of those of you who are online. I'm not sure if there's anybody else that's joined us, Mishi, that I would like to maybe greet to the Daniels family. We didn't greet you earlier on. Hello, Arthur and Pam. Um, hello to you, Judith, as well, and to you, Liesel and Ryan. Good morning to all of you. The others I have all greeted. Uh, it's good to have you with us all today. What I have in my heart to share with you uh, is actually a continuation from, from what I spoke about last week. Last week, I, I, I had a message entitled, From Cliché to Character. And I want to recap just on some of those points because what I share today really just it fits within the same ambit of what I believe the Lord would say to us. A cliche is a saying or an idea that has become overused to the point where its original meaning or effect is lost, even to the point of being trite or irritating, especially when at some earlier time it was considered meaningful or novel. I don't want to go into some of the examples, all of the examples I used last week, but there are certain things where we've heard it so many times that it's lost its impact. It no longer moves our heart. The first time you heard it, it was impactful, but you just become so used to it that it doesn't carry the same significance and meaning. And in church, I think this is more prevalent than anywhere else. We've become so used to certain, certain scriptures, certain sayings, certain ideas that actually the power contained and locked in those scriptures or ideas is lost to us because they're just, it's become a cliche. It's not a cliche, but to us it's become a cliche. Some of the things the Bible says, 1 Peter 5, 7, give all your worries and your cares to God because he cares about you. We've all heard that before, but yet we still sit with anxieties and worries. And in the midst of our anxieties and worries, when I'm reminded of that scripture, it no longer, because it's become just a cliche, it no longer becomes a practical step for me, something I can actually do. It's just a good idea. It's, it's kind of a comforting thought. It's kind of like a pat on the back sort of saying, all right, you'll be okay. Whereas actually, I remember a time, and this is a personal testimony, where I was so overwhelmed by the weight of pressure I was facing in the workplace that I would sit in, on my bed in the mornings, tears streaming down my face, not knowing how I'm going to make it through this day and accomplish what lies before me, saying, so God, I'm going to take all of this stuff. And literally, I sat on my bed and went, God, I just give it to you because I can't carry this. And I experienced in those moments how the peace of God flooded my heart and mind. In that moment, it became powerful and real to me. But there's other times in my life where I've heard that scripture and gone right back to, oh, what's going to happen about this? Or how are we going to solve that problem? Or how is this going to work itself out? You understand? It has to do with how we approach it. Philippians 4, 12, 4 uh, 13, I think it is. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? Is that true? Well, yes, because the Bible says it's true, and Jesus is alive, and he lives in you. How much has that changed your everyday walk when you're facing trials and difficulties? How much does that actually mean to you, or has it just become a cliche? So, like we said, these words are true, and each of them are a call from God. They're a promise from God into a different reality. What they do is they reveal to us the true location of our hearts, the true location of our faith. In other words, is, what is faith? Faith is an active thing. 
Faith is not just a passive belief. Faith is an active thing. And if I am active in worrying, in, in anxiety, and concern, what does that tell me? That tells me that that's where I'm active and my faith is inactive. And so when I read a verse like that, it's not only a call and an invitation to me, but it's a tester of my own heart, of my own trust, of my own faith and affection. We looked at Joseph and all the things that he went through. God gave him this incredible dream, this incredible expectation, which was outside the bounds of all natural probability. And the Bible says in Psalm 105, 19, that until the time that that promise, the word of the Lord came to pass, that word tested him. Would Joseph continue to believe and to trust what God had said, despite all the circumstances around him looking in the opposite? Wonderful promise from God. What did it lead to? Slavery. It led to a dungeon. It led to what seemed like the complete opposite of the expectation that God had created. How much of our lives today look like the complete opposite of the expectation God creates in our hearts and minds through His words? There's a challenge there. There's an invitation there. You see, the Word of God does, did for Joseph what it does for us today. It presents us with an expectation outside of natural probability. And that's why we require faith to believe it. We also looked at Abraham and Sarah, a journey of 25 years of words from God, of, of, of trying to believe the Word of God and then you know, trying to make the Word of God come to pass in their own strength, trying to come up with ideas. And the truth is that when we read the Old Testament narrative of, of, of what happened and their journey and what was taking place in their hearts, we see that even though they seemed to do all the right things externally, they left home, they went and, and followed and did what God said, they both questioned within their hearts whether what God had promised would really come to pass. The Bible says, and we read it last week, and I want to go into it, that Abraham said in his heart that he wondered how could this possibly be. And Sarah laughed in her heart. In other words, on the outside, we know this, folks. We know that on the outside we can put on a brave front. But on the inside, where faith works and exists, that's, where, that's what makes all the difference. Abraham and Sarah both laughed. Abraham says, fell on his face laughing at the prospect of the expectation that God gave to them. But yet, along the way, something changed. There was an encounter with, with Abraham where God asked him a question and said, Abraham, it's been 24 years, and you, you're kind of laughing, and Sarah's laughing in the background here, but is anything too hard for God? Abraham gave him all the reasons why what he was saying was impossible. His body was beyond what, what could produce children. His, Sarah's body was, his, his wife's body was well beyond childbearing years. And God says, hang on, is anything too imp impossible for God? Anything. And I believe that at that moment, something shifted within the heart of Abraham. Something shifted and changed that this, this, what seemed to be a cliche, just a good promise, uh, a word out there, something changed, not externally, but deep within the heart of Abraham, deep within the heart of Sarah, because this is what the New Testament says about them, Romans 4, 19 to 21, and not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body. Now, there's a time he stopped paying attention to his circumstances, already dead since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, 
giving glory to God and being fully convinced, say fully convinced, that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. He was able to perform. Is anything too hard for God? There came a point where he was fully convinced that God was able. And I want you to see a key here, because this is really what I'm going to be unpacking a little bit later. He did not waver at unbelief by considering the natural circumstances. There's a key in that, and we're going to look at that later. Again, Hebrews 11, 11, 11, Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age. Why? Because she judged him faithful who promised. This transition from what is common and normal, from what we've known about the Bible, from you know, saying the Lord's Prayer or the 23rd Psalm since when we were little kids and just kind of knowing it in these words, they sometimes seem to be such a cliche, to bring those into the depths of our heart and make them a reality in our lives is a deeply personal journey that each one of us needs to walk out with God. This is the fight of faith, and it's a continuous fight. This is where we end off last week, to understand that just because we have this grapple, I want you to understand today, does not mean your faith is deficient. It doesn't mean that, oh, you have no faith, because I think so often we get caught up in that. It means that there's some things that we have to still settle in our hearts. The Bible tells us that not everybody successfully navigates this transition. The book of Hebrews chapter 4 says that indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard didn't profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. You see, the Bible tells us that the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is the very power of God unto salvation. Doesn't that mean that it should work every time? Every time it's preached, surely there should be power. Maybe the power has to come in other ways. I you know? It should work every But it tells us here that it doesn't. Why? Because it requires an interaction on our part, deep within our hearts and minds. Later in the same chapter, and I like to read this from the Passion Translation, from verse 11, it says, we must be eager to experience this faith rest. What does he talk about? Faith rest is the point where you are no longer wrestling. You're no longer trying to, to make what seems like a cliche become a reality, but your heart is actually settled in it now. It is already a reality to you deep within your heart, whether you see anything outside or not so that no one falls short by following the same pattern of doubt and unbelief. For we have the living word of God, which is full of energy, like a two-mouthed sword or a two-edged sword. It will even penetrate to the very core of our being. Why? Because that's where this wrestle takes place. Where soul and spirit, bone and marrow meet, the center and the core of our being. It interprets and reveals the true thoughts and secret motives of our hearts. It goes to the place where although on the outside we can say all the right things and appear to do all the right things, the Word of God kind of just strips us. It strips us from all our pretense. It strips us from, from, oh, we say we're doing it with the right motives, but deep down, God can see and He reveals our true motives to us. You see, acknowledging the true thoughts and the true secret motives of our hearts is the first step to doing something about them. Any change or any transition from what seems to be a cliche into a reality 
lies with us. You see, the Word of God is not going to change. It remains established, but yet it works for some and it doesn't work for others. Is that word deficient somehow? No. The change has to do with what we do with it and the things we consider. Let's look, let's look at a few scriptures that we're familiar with concerning this subject. One of them is Romans chapter 12, verse 2. I want to read it to you from the Message Translation. Paul writes to the Romans and he says, Don't become so well-adjusted with your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Let's pause for a moment. In other words, the status quo. We spoke last week about natural expectation. Your education, what you know, your circumstances, your upbringing, your culture, all of these things will determine for you what your natural expectation is within the world you're living in, what the natural expectation is for your future. And Paul here says, don't become so well adjusted to natural expectations in the culture that you, you live up to it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God and you'll be changed from the inside out. Not trying to make things happen on the outside, hoping they'll change you on the inside. No, you'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what He wants from you. Quickly respond to it. In other words, I need to look at what may seem to be a cliche. I need to look at the Word and realize that every time I engage with the Word of God, a response is required from me. If my response is simply, hmm, that's interesting, guess what? I've adopted another cliche. But if my heart is willing to say, is that really so? Do I really believe that? Do I really see myself that way? Then I'm beginning to allow that word to transform me. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you and develops well-formed maturity in you. This has to do about where it is we deliberately fix our attention. It makes all the difference. And I want to say to you, it's deliberate and it's purposeful. I don't know of a man who lives a life of faith accidentally. Why? Because it's a battle. If it was easy, everybody would be doing it. It's deliberate and it's purposeful. It doesn't happen by accident. And it takes effort and it takes discipline. It takes a mindset to say, this is the course I am going to set for myself, for my life, for my thought life. Paul says in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, again from the message, so if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it. How do you act like it? Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with the things in front of you. Look up. Be alert to what is going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from His perspective. Makes all the difference, doesn't it? You see, the reason so much of what God says to us can feel like a cliche is because it's directly at odds with our understanding of natural outcomes and probabilities, our natural circumstances. It's interesting that we don't talk much about faith or about doubt or about unbelief outside of, of a, either a religious context or a conspiracy context. Today, there's a lot of things. What do you believe? 
Do you believe this virus was a, is a hoax? Because I'll tell you what, there's a lot of people who do. Do you believe that it was made in Wuhan or that a bat flew in with it? Well, we don't know what to believe there. But a lot of people are thoroughly convinced of one or the other. What do you believe about this vaccine? A lot of people believe that we're all guinea pigs. Despite the fact that the technology's been around for over 20 years. SARS virus, which is COVID, has been around for over 20 years. That's why they could roll the vaccine out so quickly. What do you believe? All these conspiracies. What is the truth? I don't want to speak too much into that. I'm going to preach on the wrong thing. But it's very interesting. Think about this, folks. What sets people of faith apart, what sets believers apart, is the fact that they believe something. Despite natural circumstances very often saying something different. That makes us a peculiar people. That's why Paul says you're a peculiar people. You see, the things, these things are centered on our response to an expectation that is created beyond the realms of possibility. So when it comes to God's word, doubt and unbelief, we need to understand what these elements are and, and how they affect us and they impact our lives. Because Abraham, as we read earlier on, he didn't waver through unbelief, but he believed. So concerning the Word of God, we can have one of three responses. Number one is doubt. Doubt is the state of heart and mind that allows natural probability, natural understanding to establish our expectation and our resultant behavior. What does that mean? That means I don't trust God. I don't trust that His Word is true. I choose rather to reject that and trust something or someone else. I trust rather in myself and my ability. I trust rather in, in, in information that is out there, whether it's true or not. But doubt says, I'm not sure about that, Therefore, I withhold trust. That's what doubt does. I'm not sure. So I cannot put emphasis there. I cannot, my, my life can't depend on that because I don't trust it. Faith is the state of heart and mind that allows the Word of God to establish expectation and therefore result in behavior. So in other words, I do trust this. I believe that it's true. And therefore, I will act and live as though it is true because I trust it completely more than any other information. Unbelief is the state of heart and mind that vacillates between the two. It is the power of indecision that leads to instability. And I want to say that within the church and within the people of God, going back to the nation of Israel all the way through to the day, this day, this is where most of us struggle. We do trust the Word of God, but there's other information as well that draws us. And we get caught up in this wrestling match where we're going, um, and we vacillate. We try to consider both. And almost like on a set of scales, we weigh one up against the other. God, you know, And we play the yes, but game. Yes, but God's Word says. Oh, yes, but the situation says. Oh, yes, but this verse says. Oh, yes, but so-and-so says. Oh, yes, but that's what's happening. Oh, yes, but we play yes, but all day long. I don't know about you. I've been trapped in yes, but for a long time on certain issues. 
until you realize and you go, hang on a second, catch a wake up, because you, you're vacillating here. Unbelief is the power or the influence that the consideration of that which is contrary to the expectation created by God's word has over you. That's a big mouthful. Let me say that again. Unbelief is the power or the influence that the consideration of that which is contrary to the expectation God creates, in other words, contrary to God's word, has over you. That's the power of unbelief. We saw last week how Abraham wrestled with his yes but. Yes but my body. Yes but my wife. I want to give you some other examples this morning. I'm going to give you two from the Old Testament and two from the New Testament. Because I want you to see that in every situation where an expectation is created and people fail to enter into it, the issue is not that they didn't believe the expectation in the first place. Those who just rejected have no expectation. But the failing point was when they vacillated and they allowed two opinions to compete with one another as though they were equals. The first is Israel as they come to the Red Sea. I want to read to you, I'll do it very quickly for the sake of time, some of the things that happened. First of all, uh, Israel and the Red Sea, they arrive there, and now what's happened? Egypt and Pharaoh and all his army is chasing after them. And we see from verse 10 of chapter 14 of Exodus, when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes And behold, say behold. Behold, the Egyptians marched after them, so they were very afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. They saw something. And they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone and to serve the Egyptians, for it would be better to serve the Egyptians than it will be to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, don't be afraid, stand still and see, say see, the salvation of the Lord which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see, say see, today you shall see Again, no more. Why? For the Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. There's a theme here and it's got to do with focus. It's got to do with what you see. Some of the verses we've already read, it says, set your mind and your vision and your focus on things above. Be transformed through the renewing of your mind so that you see things from a different perspective. And they saw the Egyptians and they trembled. Moses saw God and he said, Chill out, fellas. You're going to see something now. It's interesting that the same thing happened to the same group of people when they came up to the Jordan River. And they were about to enter into the promised land. And so they sent out 12 spies. And the 12 spies came back. And 10 of them gave a report that, oh, man, like this. They said, Numbers 13, 33, we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak. They came from giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. How did they see themselves? Grasshoppers. However, Caleb and Joshua saw something different. A little bit later in that, in that narrative, chapter 14, verses 6 to 9, but Joshua the son of Nun, Caleb the son of Jephunneh, 
who were among those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes and they spoke to all the congregation of Israel saying, the land we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. I love that. They are our bread. They are our bread. They're our nourishment. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. He's saying, don't look there. Don't set your attention there. Set your attention on who is with us. What are you seeing? You're seeing that. All right, we see they're there. You see, this is the difference between sight and vision, folks. Sight sees things. Vision sees the future according to a completely different expectation. Vision sees beyond it. Vision doesn't deny the current reality, but it looks beyond it. What the Word of God gives us is not a denial of the current circumstances, but it enables us to see beyond it. And if we're willing to embrace it and take it into our hearts and believe it with all our hearts and step out into it, we can change not only the expectation, but the circumstances. Let's look at some examples from the New Testament. Peter walks on water. (laughs) What an incredible, incredible miracle. Matthew 14 from 28, Peter answered and said to him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. So Jesus appears to them in the middle of the night on a boat. It's a pretty spooky thing. There's a storm going. And uh, Peter says, if it's you, call me to come. Or are you just a spook? Verse 29, so he said, come. And Peter came down out of the boat and he walked on the water to Jesus. So Peter looking to Jesus and says, Jesus, if you're not a cliche, make this real. And Jesus says, come on then. And Peter did. I think that's just incredible. But when he saw, when he saw, when he looked at the wind and the waves which were boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him. And he said to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why Why did he doubt? Because he stopped looking to Jesus. He set his eyes on the waves. And listen, we've all been in a storm. When the wind is blowing and the waves are beating and the rain is falling, what is your expectation? I'm going to get wet. I'm expecting these waves to hit me. I'm expecting something to happen. And Jesus said, yeah, but were you ever expecting to walk on the water in the midst of this? But you did. But you did. I wonder what the other disciples must have thought. How incredible a moment. All right, one more story from the New Testament. I want to take you to Mark chapter 9, where the disciples couldn't cast out an epileptic spirit. Mark 9 from 17 to 24. Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. The mute spirit. And whenever it seizes him, It throws him down, he foams at the mouth, gnashes at the teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they cast it out, but they could not. He answered and said, Oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him. 
And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked the father of this child, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And he often has thrown him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. What was Jesus' response? If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father, cried, uh, the father of the child cried out with tears and said, Lord, I believe. And in all sincerity of honesty in his heart, he said, Help my unbelief. I want to believe, but I st- help me. And I think if more of us were just honest to say, God, I see what it says, but I'm still stuck here. Help me. Because I haven't reached that faith rest place. It hasn't become real to me inside yet. I need help. I recently heard somebody say something that really made me think. He said, why is it that when when, when the father brought the child to Jesus, that suddenly the spirit convulsed him? Could it be because that worked for the disciples? The disciples had been healing people and casting out demons all the time. Suddenly this boy come on, he's convulsing and he's foaming at the mouth and they're now seeing something different and all of a sudden, it seems like their faith is not working. Something else was presented to them. Shook them. Maybe the demon thought it would work with Jesus as well. You see, it managed to get the disciples focused on the natural focused on the noise, focused on the tempest, rather than focused on what God and Jesus had said to them. Help me in my unbelief. It's this vacillation. This is what James has to say about it. James 1, 5 to 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to you liberally without reproach and it will be given to him. What is wisdom? Wisdom is truth. Wisdom is God's word. Wisdom is to know what to do and to, highlight, and to know how to handle a situation. Wisdom is to see things from God's perspective. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is double-minded and unstable in all his ways. And this is our grapple. This is our struggle. I want to give you a strategic secret this morning. Taken not so much from what we see in the Bible, but taken from military strategy. The battle is not won on the front lines. This battle against unbelief, this battle to transition from what seems like a cliche into a reality. It's not one on the front lines. This battle is one in the supply lines. Whoever controls the supply lines controls the fight. Let me give you an example. In World War II, Rommel, one of the greatest generals within the German army, was undone in his, in his pursuit of control of North Africa. Why? because the British and the Allies managed to cut off his supply lines. The Italian supply lines that were feeding him and and, and supply lines coming through through other areas, even through Tunisia, he cut it all out. They stopped the supply, and Rommel, despite all his strength, despite everything he'd done, he came undone. Same thing happened to the German war effort against the Soviets when they pressed into Russia. 
They pressed too far. Winter hit them. The land got bogged down and they couldn't get fuel, they couldn't get supplies and munitions to the front lines. Guys had beautiful bunkers, but they were literally starving to death. Folks, there's two things we need to do. We need to cut off the supply lines of that which gives us the wrong information, of that which is contrary to the expectation God is trying to create in our hearts and minds. Stop feeding it. Stop feeding it. If you, you know, there's that old adage, two dogs are in a fight. Which one dies? Which one, which one wins? The one you feed. The one you feed. We've got to cut off the supply lines of that which is contrary to the Word of God. And we need to keep ourselves well-fueled with the desired expectation. Keep it before us. You, and the most effective way to do this, to cut off the supply lines of natural reasoning and to give ourselves over and keep ourselves well-fueled is through the practice of fasting. Jesus, in that incident of that young boy, said, this, this kind does not come out by prayer and fasting. What kind? The spirit of unbelief. This weighing up of things. This constant struggling with our flesh, our natural reasoning, our appetites, our desires, our expectation of natural possibilities. Those things don't just die. They need to be starved. <laughs> and we don't gain the victory in faith by giving ourselves to those things and starving our hearts of what God says. Fasting is when you're hungrier for something than you, that you can't see than you are for that which you can see. <laughs> That's what fasting is really all about. I really like that definition. It's developing an appetite for that which you can't see with your natural eyes through feeding yourself continually with an image and a picture of the truth of what God says about the situation. And it is through the practice of fasting. It's one of the tools, not the only tool, but it's through this practice that we are able to transition from sight to vision, from cliche to character. You see, to transition from when God's word is just a cliche to us to when it's actually become a part of us, it costs us something. It's going to have to cost us our old way of thinking, our old expectations. It's going to have to cost us time but it's worth it. It is worth it. It is worth it. Stephen gave us a beautiful analogy this morning of Ezekiel, I think it's Ezekiel 47, where he talks about the rivers that come out from the throne of God and you go into your ankles, you go into your, your knees, you go in waist deep. Is that what you were referring to? Yeah. And eventually you get lost in it. The word is here. We have so much of it in our heads already and in our hearts already. I just sense the Lord is saying, my child, you, 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 you know so much, but I want to draw you into the depths of it. Stop standing ankle deep or knee deep or even waist deep and enjoying just the view of this beautiful stream. Allow yourself to step in and be swept away by it. Allow the word of God to take you to the destiny he has prepared for you by believing it, by saying, I am going to step away from the shores of all expected outcomes, and I'm going to allow God to take me to the outcome that He calls me to. We hope that you've enjoyed this message. 
For additional resources and more information, come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.